Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, as the Olympic Games kick off in Tokyo, we ask, what are the limits of human performance? I think we're decades away from the very greatest athletes that we will ever see on Earth. And we go back to 1920 to find out what happened when Antwerp held the Olympics in the wake of World War I and the Spanish flu pandemic. At the Olympic Games, there were no masks. You, everyone is packed together uh, without masks, and I think they, they got lucky. I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. And I'm Gemma Ware in London. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. Dan, I'm not going to lie. I love the Olympics. Me too. There's something so cool about watching people just in the heat of the moment doing their best and trying to win the gold medal. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah, and I know there are lots of problems with them and the way that they're imposed on places that don't necessarily want them and the legacies that they have. And, and Tokyo is going to be absolutely no different and have its own problems this year. But there's just something about the spectacle of it and the, the global coming togetherness of it that just makes me... Uh, makes me emotional, I guess. <laughs> and that's totally understandable. There's just something really cool about watching humans perform at their peaks, right? Yeah, and I know it's a bit cheesy, but it's kind of all there in the Olympic motto, which is Sitius Altius Fortius, or faster, higher, stronger, uh, which is all about reaching the absolute limits of human performance. And that's exactly what we're going to explore today. We spoke to three experts who've looked at what's physically possible for the human body to do, how technology is pushing the boundaries of performance a bit farther, and finally, the role that an athlete's mental state plays in performance. And a little note, we've purposely decided to not focus on doping in this episode. It's a whole other ballgame with its own history and ethical questions, so for this one, we're keeping it drug-free, everyone. Nicole Forrester was one of those athletes who liked to block the world out before it was her turn to compete. I had the visor sunglasses on and then I had my headphones, but what was playing in my headphones usually was something like Andre Bocelli or Sarah Brightman or something because I needed to calm my, my nerves down. So people might be thinking I'm like rocking out to, I don't know, Jay-Z or something, but I'm listening to like some classical music. Nicole's an Olympian. She competed as a high jumper for Canada at the 2008 Beijing Olympics and then two years later, won gold at the Commonwealth Games in Delhi. Not all athletes like to listen to music before their races, though. I think it varies from athlete to athlete. For some athletes, that might be just awful. And then for other athletes, that might work for them. And, you know, the ones where it might be awful, maybe they do better if they're socializing and they're talking to others and it helps them to feel more relaxed and so on. And so an athlete needs to know the conditions that they perform at their best and the conditions that they don't perform at their best. And once they can identify that, then they can start kind of building their house so that they set the stage for the conditions for what, what's going to help them perform better. Today, Nicole is an assistant professor in the School of Sport Media at Ryerson University in Toronto. There, she studies sports psychology, and she's also a mental performance consultant. We'll be hearing from Nicole again later. But before we dive into the brain, let's go into the physics and biology of the human body and see what it can really do. My name's uh, Tony Blazevich. I'm a professor in biomechanics and lecturer in clinical neurophysiology at Edith Cowan University in Australia. Tony researches how humans move most effectively 
and how to achieve peak performance using exercise or particular training techniques. So I've always wondered, how much of an impact does the way a person is built, their genes, the stuff they can't control, how much does that affect someone's athletic performance? Well, the unfortunate thing for most of us is that genes matter. You know, it's a really massive factor influencing uh, how we move and the quality with which we can move. Every aspect of the human, from the size of your heart and lungs to the network of blood vessels to the lengths of your arms and legs and even the lengths of your tendons all influence how you move. Take your muscles. Muscles contain two different types of fibers fast twitch fibers and slow twitch fibers and they kind of do exactly what they sound like so if you've got muscles that are really really fast you're more likely to be a sprinter and if you've got muscles that are really sort of slow but less fatigable you might be an endurance runner endurance cyclist or something like that now Training can kind of modify some of these things, but only by, say, 10 or 20%, whereas your genes can make a massive difference. You can have, you know, double the fast twitch fibers of someone else. So if we were to compare, for example, an elite endurance runner to an elite sprinter, you'll see certain similarities and differences. Literally, the stuff your muscles are built out of can differ by a lot from person to person. Height and build, of course, also matter. If you want to run long distances over long periods of time, your body has to preserve as much energy as possible. Every time you bounce on the ground, it costs you energy. You're moving up against gravity every time. So the more often you hit the ground, the more energy it will cost. So endurance athletes have to be tiny. They have to be light. The smaller, the better, essentially. But not only their whole body mass, but their limbs. Because as you're moving your legs and arms, it costs us energy as well. So the lighter they are, the better. And that doesn't just mean that the limbs themselves, for example, don't have a lot of muscle mass in them, but what muscles they do have would be located up higher in the limb, so nearer to your shoulder or nearer to your hip. And that's actually the case with most running animals on earth. Think about a camel or a cheetah or a racehorse. They've all got very, very lean lower limbs and very big sort of shoulder and hip muscles as well that propel them. And of course, then, you know, once everything is light and easy to move, these endurance runners have very small sort of muscles with very long tendons. And those tendons store and release elastic energy. And so we're really bouncing between steps. So instead of the muscles doing all the work, the tendons are. Sprinters, on the other hand, are built different. The limbs would be a bit longer in a sprinter. You can have more muscle mass because body mass is less important, but you need the muscles to drive the movement. Instead of those nice slow twitch fibers that don't fatigue, they'll have the fast twitch ones to give you a lot of power. And in fact, humans as a species are one of the few sort of large mammals built with a lot of slow twitch fibers. Most of the mammals have lots of fast twitch fibers. The best sprinter might have, say, 70% fast twitch fibers, a cheetah about 80%. But you or I, more like 50%. And in some of the time, the distance runners might only have 30 to 40%. So there's these big genetic differences in how we're built. These genetic differences mean if your body isn't built the right way, you're just not going to make it to the top no matter how much you train. A highly athletic person who really enjoys running and is actually quite naturally good at high-speed running, if they trained all their lives, they might run 100 meters in 10 and a half or 11 seconds as a bit of a benchmark, whereas some of these elite sprinters, even with only a little bit of training, they could beat you already. And by the time they do all their training, they're running more like nine and a half to 10 seconds. So they are a good, you know, 10, 20% faster than you could ever possibly be. So you don't just catch up to that by doing a bit of extra cool, funky training. Genetics really matters.
Are there some like physics limits from biomechanics? Can you say the human limbs can only be this long? The tendons can only have this much tension in them? Yeah, there clearly are. Because the good thing is we can take the entire population of Earth and we can ask what is the most genetic outliers that we can see. And as long as we can then build a model of what makes the greatest distance runner or sprinter or makes someone kick or throw better than everyone else, we can then look at at least within the human variability, what the optimum would be. And we could try and find that optimum. If you try to cycle, if you get on a bike, in the end, the drag you experience increases to the square of your velocity. So every time you double the velocity, your drag goes up four times. I mean, at the elite level, the power output of a cyclist is basically overcoming drag. So at some point, we know that the human muscle tendon skeletal system is only going to be capable at its absolute genetic freak of a certain amount of power. And therefore, there will be a limit. What we're pretty confident is that we haven't reached that yet. And another example is, you know, in 100-meter sprinting, you'll see some people start very quickly and other people have a better top speed. So the question is, well, what happens if you get someone who actually, for once, can do both better than anyone? Where does that leave us? And most of those estimates leave us at something like 9.3 seconds for 100 meters. The current world record for the men's 100 meter, held by Jamaica's Usain Bolt, is 9.58 seconds. Usain Bolt, challenged by Tyson Gay. Usain Bolt, two clear meters. 9.58, smashing the world record. So 9.3, that would be just under 3% faster. That's three meters over 100 meters. You'd be three meters faster. So that's daylight, isn't it? That's still a way to go. You think that's a way to go. But to me, a layperson, we're at 97% peak performance as far as the human species, right? I mean, is that a fair way of thinking about that concept? Uh, yeah, I guess it depends on what you think is big, right? <laughs> How yeah, long is a yeah. piece of string, you know? So for me, I'm thinking, wow, we've still got 3% to go. That is a long way to go. But do we think someone will eventually run, you know, 8.8 .8 seconds? I, I think most people I know think that that is not physically possible for a two-legged human species to do. Does the stuff you see happening today, does it blow your mind or do you still think there's room for people to go farther? It blows my mind, and I still think we can go further. You know, if 50 years ago you were pretty athletic and you did a fair bit of training and you ran or swam or cycled next to an elite athlete, yeah, they would beat you quite well. But, you know, you're in the same ballpark. And these days, the greatest athletes, it's a whole different ballpark, right? The question then is, well, where do we go in the future? Surely with all the sports science, all the understanding of physics and the genetics in our athletes, we've got to be plateauing on the curve. We can't keep improving at the rate we do. And and I would agree with that. I don't think we're going to see you know, massive changes in human performance like we have in the last 40 to 50 years. But what's really interesting is we keep improving. And just when everyone thinks, ah, oh, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, that will probably be the limit. We keep pushing through those limits. And there are lots of reasons for it. I mean, for a start, we have literally billions of people around the world being brought from a very low socioeconomic base to a higher one. So now they can actually participate in sport. And so now we can scour the earth for the greatest of genetics and then give them an opportunity to succeed at the highest level. And that's not finished yet. That's going to keep happening over the next decades of life as the world changes. We're also going to improve technologies. And I think the changes in these technologies and 
some of the rules of our sports will allow sports science and training practices to evolve even further. So I think we're decades away from the very greatest athletes that we will ever see on earth. So Tony's work focuses on maximizing the potential of the human body. But in some sports, such as sailing or motor racing, technological innovation plays perhaps an even more important role than the body itself. What about running? It's simply an athlete out on the track or on the road trying to run as fast as they can over a given distance. It seems almost pure, right? But even here, recent developments in shoe technology have caused quite a stir. I'm Jonathan Taylor, and I am a lecturer in sport and exercise at Teesside University in the UK. Jonathan is a former international middle distance runner. I started running competitively around 14, and primarily I did this to help me with uh, fitness for football. But then I quickly found out that I was probably better at running than I was at football. So much better, in fact, that he ended up representing Great Britain nine times on the international stage. During his running career from 2004 to 2016, there were clear improvements in the shoes he'd get from his sponsors, as well as the kit or outfit that he and his fellow athletes used. But it was more like sort of slow and steady, gradual changes in what you would see. Um, So it wasn't entirely noticeable. That all changed, though, with the arrival of, cue dramatic music, the super shoe. Unfortunately for me, I kind of dipped out of my international career and, and serious running career in 2016, which was just before the super shoes were first introduced in the Olympic Games. But at that point, nobody knew that the three medalists in the men's marathon were wearing these super shoes. They were just Nike prototypes. The following year, Nike launched the shoe as the Nike Vaporfly. In the last 13 months, runners who recorded the fastest marathon times ever were wearing the Vaporfly Nike. And now in the, the years after that, uh, we started to see some research coming out from uh, the Nike labs on this Nike prototype. And what they were demonstrating is that this Nike Vaporfly or prototype shoe could improve running economy by around 4%. Running economy is one of the things that determines how long someone can run at their fastest. If you think of your body a bit like a car, running economy would be kind of like your miles per gallon. So being able to improve it by about 4% is pretty significant. So how do these super shoes actually work to improve running economy? It comes down to four main things. The first, weight. So they were lighter than previous rival shoes. So we're talking 50 grams lighter than your uh, competitor shoe. And obviously, if you're carrying something lighter on your your feet, it's going to be less energetic cost. Second is the foam that sits between the upper fabric part of the shoe and the sole that touches the ground. The foam in the shoe is made of a material called PBAX, which is is lighter and maybe less dense than EVA, which was typically used. And this makes the shoe more compliant. So the foam in the bottom of the shoe can compress further. So we get more of a sort of spring back from the foam, so it's more resilient. Third is the carbon plate in the shoe. Other shoes had carbon plates before, but it was the shape of the plate in the Vaporfly that really seemed to make the difference. So instead of being a flat carbon plate, this is like a scoop shape. And what this does is it promotes what's been identified in the scientific literature as a teeter-totter effect. Essentially what that means is that you're getting the reaction or rebound of the carbon plate at the right time throughout your foot strike. The final aspect, and probably the most visually striking thing about these shoes, is the thickness of the sole, or the stack height, to use the technical term. For people who've seen 
uh, runners wearing the Vaporfly or when they first came out, it looked like people were running on platform shoes. So that stack height is around 40 millimetres compared to sort of previous shoes, which have been around 25 millimetres. And, and what the research suggests on the stack height is that it increases leg length by around four centimetres, which can improve run economy as well. So the 4% is the main improvement, but obviously we've got an individual variation. Some people get 2%, some people might get 6%. Since Nike first released the Vaporfly, they've released a couple other models. Other manufacturers, including Adidas, Hoka, and Asics, have also released their own super shoes. But just how super are they? Is it actually affecting times? That's the real question. So in the marathon, there's been a few studies that have looked at the progression in times from 2016 in comparison to 2008 onwards. And what they found was around about a 2% improvement in sort of respective ranking times. So, for example, the top of the rankings. For men, it was around about 2%. For women, it was around 2.5%. Now, if you look at the world all-time ranking list of the fastest times ever run, if we look at the men's and women's marathons, we've got 14 and 15, respectively, out of the top 20 times that were run since 2017. Wow. Yeah, and if you look at the half marathon, we've got 15 of the men's, and 19 of the women's best 20 times ever run were performed since 2017. On the roads, half marathon, marathon volume broken since 2017. And if we're talking about the track, the, the track spikes haven't been explored to the same extent as the road shoes, but all distance world records on the track have been broken since 2017. From 5,000 metres up to 10,000 metres have all been broken, men's and women's. But... More recently, we've started to see improvements in sprint times and the newest Nike sprint spikes have just came out, so the uh, Maxfly. And then we're starting to see some of the times that we didn't think would ever be broken or got close to, you know, being approached. So, for example, the women's 100-meter world record. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly it's hard to say, this is the shoe that's doing all of this, but the shoe's got to be a factor. Do you think that's safe to say? I don't think we can just say that everyone's all of a sudden started training harder and smarter in the last three to four years, and that's resulted in these records. In early 2020, World Athletics published regulations on footwear for the first time. What they said is for road running shoes, the stack height can't be any more than 40 millimetres. Track spikes, they were saying 25 millimetres was the limit. So they've put these sort of loose regulations in place. Shoes aren't the only tech that's making its way into running, though. 200 metres to go. Elliot Kipchoge, let's keep an eye on the clock. Into the final 20 seconds. Elliot Kipchoge. Whoa! On his shoulder. In late 2019, Elliot Kipchoge, the Kenyan runner who first ran the Nike prototypes to gold in Rio, ran a marathon that is 26.2 miles in under two hours. He was the first human to ever accomplish such a feat. Everything about the race was optimized, from the design of the track to minimize turns, to Kipchoge's clothing, to the use of a light that helped him keep the sub-two-hour pace. Some of these technologies are now also making their way into competition. The latest technology on the track is something called wave light technology, which is generally used in Grand Prix races, so we won't see that at the Olympics, but it's used in all your other major athletics 
events. And essentially, it's a fluid motion light system, so of LED lights that goes on the, the inside cover of the track. And it operates at a set pace around the track so that the athletes can just follow that to know that they're on pace for a qualifying time or a record. And if you use that in collaboration with the traditional approach, which has been to use a, an athlete pacemaker who shields the wind for the athlete, it's just a game changer, really. And uh, now I want to ask you your feel of all of this, Jonathan. So you were in this world. Does it feel almost like the people today are cheating a little bit? And do you feel like... Maybe we should all be running barefoot and see who's the fastest. See, I mean, at first I, I didn't like it because, you know, you, as an athlete who's kind of just finished my career in, in 2017 and then all these other athletes are starting to run times that are, are better and your ego gets a little bit dented. And having had a, a little bit of time to get used to it, I, I have no problems. And I think that if I was running now, I would do exactly what they're doing. So why wouldn't you use the best shoes on the market? Why wouldn't you use... Your wave light technology, if that, that's available. Uh, I think the, the key issue is availability to all. And I think what you'll see in, in Tokyo is you'll see a lot of athletes in the distance races running in either all white or blacked out shoes because they're sponsored by one brand and they're using uh, Nike's best available shoes. I mean, it would, I think it would be hypocritical as a sports scientist to say that I don't like innovations in technology because that is basically what we're trying to do. So we've heard about biomechanics, the physical limits of speed and strength, and if we've reached them. No, we have not. We've also heard about some of the technology that can help athletes push those limits out just a bit farther. But the last component of all of this, and perhaps the most important, is the mind. Someone could have the perfect sprinter's body, the perfect training schedule, and the latest, greatest super shoe, but if their head isn't in the right place on the big day, none of that other stuff really matters. Nicole Forrester, the Canadian Olympic high jumper and sports psychologist we spoke to earlier, this is what she studies. And as a former Olympian, she's got some real firsthand experience here. Initially, as, a, as an athlete, you train so hard physically. And for me, I was showing great results and practices and they weren't they weren't aligning with my results in competition and I can point to times when I fully choked and when that happens to you it's enough to let you know that you need to get help so that's the unfortunate thing because really sports psychology shouldn't be like when you have a problem it should be intertwined with the training itself and that's what I came to learn after the fact but that kind of took me down the road of being interested in it and trying to get better uh, I'll be completely frank, and I worked with a lot of mental performance consultants or sports psychologists that were awful, <laughs> but I knew enough to know that I, I needed to work on it and I needed to find somebody that could help me. And it ended up being my blessing because when I learned how to master my mental state, I realized I could go into a competition and I could have had a bad performance leading in and it didn't matter. I knew how to change gears. Like it's like you're turning on a light switch. I knew how to do that and how to compete under pressure. I, I thrived and, and loved it, but it, it took me uh, some years to get there. For her PhD, Nicole wanted to figure out what allows some elite athletes to go from being good to truly being great. And to find out, she just asked him. So you've got athletes that have been on the international stage, they're Olympians, they're holding their own, and they've been doing it for five years, and then all of a sudden they have a shift in their performance, and they go from being there to being, you know, 
world record holders and um, and being able to do that like back to back to back in the same events. Um, And then I compared them against competitors who did their same event and also showed promise that they could possibly make that leap and never did. And it was kind of like, well, how'd you do it? And to the other group, why didn't you do it? The conversations Nicole had were exploratory ones. And in doing them, she found that psychosocial factors were really central to help make a good athlete become a great one. The athletes that made the shift from good to great accounted for the psychosocial factors as being key to their ability to making the shift and and maintaining it, as well as their uh, motivation. But the big thing was that they attributed that their ability to do that was because of their mental state and and not from their training and not from like changing coaches or anything like that. And then for the athletes that didn't make the shift, they struggled with the mental game. And I remember one athlete saying, you know, I remember being in the blocks at the Olympics and just having a moment of doubt. A starter is like saying on your marks, get set, that doubt creeps in and I'm rocking back instead of like going forward as everyone's going forward and, you know, the race is gone like that. What works and what doesn't really varies from athlete to athlete. Removing distractions can be important for some. For other athletes, it's having a clear goal and sticking to it. But Nicole says of all the mental things, confidence is the most important. Confidence both in oneself, but also confidence from those around you, like your coach. And that's not like a big surprise because anyone in the field of sports psychology will understand that research in this domain has shown that confidence has been shown to be always uh, connected with peak performances. But confidence can be really fleeting. You know, you could have a high level of belief that you can do something in this moment. And then five minutes later, it could change because maybe you've watched somebody do something and now you're questioning what you can do or you've watched someone struggle. Someone has said something to you. All of a sudden you're having a sense of nervousness that as quickly as it's there, it could just be gone. The key to maintaining confidence and to maintaining whatever the good mental state may be for a particular athlete is self-regulation. This is an athlete's ability to control how they feel and adjust to what's going on around them. It's like in a house, most people have a thermostat, right? And a thermostat is there to tell the house like, hey, if I've set it at this temperature and the house is too cold, guess what? The furnace kicks on and the heat comes on. It's very automatic. Self-regulation is the same thing. It's understanding the conditions that I perform at my best, whether it's in practice or it's in competition, This is how I need to feel and being aware of the factors that help contribute to keeping you in that zone Um, and being able to, on a dime, recognize like when you're out of that state, you know, so I'm not feeling great. So I need to like adjust like I'm feeling not great because of this. You know, I just had a bad performance. It's influencing my confidence. So I'm going to shift. I'm going to start telling myself some great things or focusing on that I have been doing well and shift myself back. If you had to give me a ballpark estimate, you know, where on the hierarchy of important stuff for an Olympic athlete does the uh, psychology play? I think when you get to the super elite athlete level, because we're talking about milliseconds, that is a difference between first, second. Um, so certainly training is always going to be important and recovery and the elements of like biomechanics and so on, they are they're critical. But I'd say at the elite level, it is impossible for an athlete to 
be a gold medalist in whatever discipline without confidence. Mm -hmm. Will you be able to possibly know what peak mental performance looks like? Or is that kind of just a weird concept in and of itself? I think what what goes with that is like the idea of flow. And flow I, is like the je ne sais quoi factor. Athletes know when they are in it and they can talk about feeling like time is on their side. Either time is really fast or time is very slow. If I'm playing basketball, maybe the the basket looks as big as a hula hoop. I can't miss. It's a, a very uh, powerful, intoxicating feeling for myself as an athlete. I only experienced it twice. One time that is, is probably when I jumped my highest and I, I jumped 1.97 meters in Thessaloniki, Greece. And in that moment, it's a rhythm. Like I know what I need to do to meet the challenge that's, that's being placed before me. There's no room for doubt. I'm not questioning. I'm correcting how things are going and I'm putting things in place. And, and it feels very easy, very effortless. For me, it felt like the holy grail, like you're always searching and wanting that, that experience again. But it is, it is a moment that is conducive for amazing performances. And the problem is once you experience it, then you're trying to recreate it. And in my case, studying sports psychology or doing my PhD as I was competing at the elite level. And the more I learned about flow, the more, <laughs> you know, when I'm competing, it's like, oh, I, I could be setting myself up to go into flow. And once you realize that, you're not, you're not going to go into flow. Like, you can't know that you're experiencing it as you're experiencing it. So we've talked about how mental strength, confidence, and a good headspace are super important for peak performance. Training and nutrition and even technology also really matters. So what does all this mean for the upcoming Olympics? An Olympics that are, frankly, just kind of weird. So I asked Tony Blazovich, the biomechanics expert we heard from earlier, how he thinks the pandemic has affected the athletes. Are they going to be better? Are they going to be worse? He says kind of depends on the sport. So if you think of the team sports, you know, the soccer and the hockey and these sorts of sports, basketball, you know, in those sports, being able to see the patterns of your opponents and continually improve your um, tactics against someone else becomes a really important part of it. So if, if you're in a country that has had severe COVID restrictions for a year, that could be a real problem for you. And we might see some of the greatest teams not performing so well. But it might be a different story altogether for some of the individual events. Well, already it looks like uh, athletics um, seems to have benefited. Even on the track, so where we don't see as much you know, enhancement through technology, um, performances have been remarkable. And some people have suggested that that's because you've had these athletes who have simply been able to go away and train and think about it without the pressure of, say, a European track season and then a national championships and then a world championships and all these things that they have to structure their world around. And we're seeing some really remarkable performances in athletics or track and field. I think you might see similar in swimming. Already at national championships, there have been national and world records set in the swimming. I think you might find some really extraordinary swimming performances. So maybe it's these sports where the genetics and the having the absolutely perfect technique and having 10 years of training behind you, maybe those sorts of sports, we might see some pretty remarkable outcomes at this Olympics because of athletes literally having a year, year and a half to just think about themselves and where they want to be. Some good insights there, Dan, from Tony about what to expect in Tokyo. I'll certainly be looking at people's shoes, see if anyone's got the latest, greatest technology and getting an edge. 
You can read articles by Jonathan Taylor and Tony Blazovich on theconversation.com, alongside a host of other analysis by experts and even some more former Olympians. We'll put links in the show notes. We're taking a quick time out here to tell you about another podcast that you may enjoy. If you're hungry for more compelling discussion about the latest scientific breakthroughs, check out a new podcast called New Scientist Weekly. Each week, a panel of journalists from New Scientist and their guests discuss the biggest news in science from the environment, health, technology, space. In their latest episode, the team talk about an investigation into what they call race-based diagnostic medical practices. So that's when a patient's race or ethnicity is used to interpret their medical results. They pick apart the history of these so-called race adjustments and the harm that they're doing. It's well worth a listen. Search for New Scientist Weekly wherever you get your podcasts or head to newscientist.com slash podcasts. For our second story this week, we're sticking with the Olympics theme, but going back just over 100 years to hear the story of the 1920 Antwerp Olympics. So this was just a few decades after French Baron Pierre de Coubertin helped found the International Olympic Committee that spurred on the first modern Olympic Games in 1896 in Athens. But a lot happened between 1896 and 1920, including a catastrophic world war and the deadly Spanish flu pandemic. And yet in 1919, as Europe was beginning its slow and painful recovery from the war, and still in the grip of that pandemic, the decision was taken to hold the Olympic Games the following year, in 1920. Sounds a little bit familiar there, Gemma. So what happened? Well, to find out how it did actually go, I spoke to a sports historian who's been digging into the history of the Games. My name is Keith Rathbone. I'm a senior lecturer in modern history, more particularly modern European and sport history at Macquarie University, which is in Sydney, Australia. So you've been doing some recent research looking into the 1920 Olympics, and you've written a recent article about that for the conversation and some of the parallels that those Olympics have with what's going on in Tokyo. But I wanted to start before the Games kick off in 1919. So tell us what happened. Yeah, so this is right after the First World War. This is right in the midst of the Spanish flu. So if you're thinking about global sport, maybe this is not the time you would pick to host an Olympic Games because in terms of difficulty, this is probably one of the most difficult Olympics that's ever been organized. Uh, the continent had just been ravaged. Every government from France to the new Soviet Union was practically bankrupt, all operating in huge deficits. People were dislocated. And in the midst of that, you have the Spanish flu, which is going to kill more than 50 million people across the globe. So you're thinking this is not a great time, but the International Olympic Committee needed to host these games. We think of the Olympics as being one of the two biggest international sporting events that happened, the other being the World Cup. But in the 1910s and 1920s, they were competing with a lot of other games. So there was this impetus from the International Olympic Committee to organize the games quickly in order to reestablish their position as kind of the preeminent sporting event in the globe. And so despite the really difficult circumstances, they, they jumped on board and thought, let's go, 1920, that's the next year we're supposed to hold the game, so let's hold one. So they had a meeting to try and decide what to do, because I guess there hadn't been an Olympics during the war. So tell us what happened at that yeah, meeting. Yeah, so all the main figures at the International Olympic Committee, they met 
um, in Lausanne to decide who was going to host the next games. Now, these guys are aristocrats, and this isn't the Olympic committee that we might have today, where they're kind of having to make decisions out in the open with a lot of scrutiny and public pressure and press. This was a kind of different Olympic committee. They could decide things in a more collegial, aristocratic fashion. And so in 1919, they both needed to to decide to restart the games. Um, They wanted to buddy up with the side that had won the war. So in that context, they were like, we need to give it to somebody who had won. And you know who would be a good pick? Belgium, because they were the country that had suffered publicly the most. There was the um, very public discussion during the war of the so-called rape of Belgium, which is a kind of intense language to talk about the German occupation. So they chose the country that had been worst affected. And how did they decide which city to, to choose? They chose Antwerp because Antwerp was one of, if not the only city that could reasonably hold it in Belgium at the time. But it wasn't a city that hadn't suffered itself. The whole idea was to pick Belgium as a kind of symbol of the way in which the International Olympic Committee was recognizing the righteousness of the Entente powers of the Allied powers cause. At the same time, they wanted to pick a city that was maybe plausible. And how did the rest of the world react, A, to the decision to hold a Games at all, and and B, to hold it in Belgium? Most of the world was supportive. Uh, So Lotto, the major French sporting newspaper, just mirrored the words of the International Olympic Committee and was saying, you know, Belgium has suffered and now it's time to stick it in the eye of the central powers that tried to destroy Belgium and show that this plucky country can still hold this great games. But around the world, there were also a lot of people who are quite skeptical of both the International Olympic Committee's messaging and the possibility of holding a game. So the International Olympic Committee, of course, when we think of the Olympics today, we think of international unity and brotherhood and peace. That's been part of the m- message since the reformulation of the modern games in the 19th century. But after World War I, there were a lot of people, including the Undersecretary of Foreign Affairs in the UK, Ari Crow, who just said, this is an international farce. There's no way we're going to get together with the central powers in a moment of peace and brotherhood. And in fact, Despite this elevated language about brotherhood, the Belgian Olympic Committee didn't invite the Germans or the Austrians, uh, any of the countries that emerged out of the out of the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, any of the countries that emerged out of the old uh, Ottoman Empire. So none of the belligerent powers who had lost were welcome at the games. Okay, so only the victors essentially could, could attend. How did Belgium go about kind of preparing for the games in this? this moment of, I guess, chaos in Western Europe at the time. So you can think uh, about Tokyo today and how long we've known Tokyo is having the Olympics. They've had essentially a decade to plan almost. Uh, Antwerp had less than a year (laughs) to plan this Olympics after the First World War. So in the context of a post-war recession, they had to plan an, an Olympic Games. And they did the best they could. They managed to rehabilitate a stadium into an Olympic stadium, so it almost doubled its its size and capacity. But there wasn't that much they could do, so they faced a huge number of difficulties in terms of producing athletic facilities, finding and securing locations for athletes, and preparing for them to arrive in Belgium. So... What kind of conditions were the athletes actually competing in? Can you give us some examples? Sure. So Walker Smith, an American track athlete, talked about the living conditions. He talked about his accommodations 
in Antwerp, which was a dormitory that he slept in with 15 other men on beds without mattresses. Similarly, there was a real shortage of food. So the Olympic Committee, again, wasn't able to offer the same kinds of, of food supplies. And athletes were kind of left to find their own food, and except for breakfast. They got a roll, a cup of coffee, and a tiny sardine, which is not a great breakfast if you're, if you're an international athlete. The most difficult conditions were probably faced by the swimmers and the divers uh, and the water polo players who were literally playing in an open waterway. The Belgian committee had constructed a wooden frame inside an existing canal and the water was evidently freezing enough that some people had to be taken out with hypothermia, and it was dirty. So it was quite difficult. Can you see evidence, or is there any historical evidence of kind of taking mitigation against the risk of the Spanish flu, which was still um, kind of circulating at this time, wasn't it? Well, actually, the last wave of Spanish flu in Europe was in the spring of 1920, three and a half months before the games kicked off. But they didn't know that that was going to be the last wave, obviously. And the Spanish flu wasn't circulating as fast as we see COVID circulate today. And, And frankly, people didn't know as much about how diseases traveled. At the Olympic Games, there were no masks. You, everyone is packed together uh, without masks. And I think they, they got lucky because they certainly couldn't have known that there was no possibility or that Spanish flu wouldn't reemerge. But that wasn't something that they were ready to mandate. So it must have been something they were thinking about, but it by, by all means wasn't the biggest problem they had. How did Belgians view what was happening? How, did they come out to, to watch? Um, were they kind of frustrated that this was happening or were they pleased? The newspapers themselves, the sports presses themselves were very tied in with organizations like the IOC. They were often organized by people who had a vested interest in seeing major sporting organizations succeed. So there wasn't a lot of public dissension afterwards. So you have to get at these things kind of sideways. But one way you could look at it is by looking at ticket sales. And the number of people who turned out for the games was very low. Uh, much lower than they expected. And that helps to explain in part why the local committee went bankrupt. So the audiences didn't come out in big numbers. Do you see many parallels with with those games and, and that moment in 1920 and 2021 and what's going on in Tokyo? Yeah. So the other another lesson that I think we as a public could learn about the Olympics in general is that for all that we value about the games – the Olympics is is not just about brotherhood and international unity. They hosted the games in 1920 in part to uh, allay worries that maybe they'd been too neutral during the war. They hosted them to keep their competitors uh, out of the limelight. And in 2021 in Tokyo, we should remember that the International Olympic Committee also has their own agenda. They're not listening to Tokians who say maybe they don't want to hold the games right now. We can raise questions about how much international brotherhood or unity they're going to bring about if there's no spectators and you can't have any international travel. So we shouldn't forget there's a financial side to this for the International Olympic Committee that might um, be more important to them than some of their ostensive values about brotherhood and unity, peace. Thanks so much, Keith. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for having me. Keith Rathbone there from McCary University. You can read a story that he's written about the Antwerp Games, including some images from the tournament, on The Conversation. We'll put a link in the show notes. 
to end this week's episode, we've got a message with some recommended reading from our colleague Tabo Lashilo in Johannesburg. I'm Tabo Lishilo, the politics editor for The Conversation based in Johannesburg. In the past week, South Africa experienced its worst incidents of rioting, violence, looting and destruction since democracy in 1994. Why did this happen? I have selected two articles from several republics to shed some light on the event. In the first, Ntaibisi Ngetana from the University of Johannesburg shows how the unrest is being used to subvert the country's young democracy. He says giving in to the demands of those behind the mayhem is not an option. Ngechana says that supporters of former President Jacob Zuma, who was recently jailed for contempt of court, are using the violence to scare the government into releasing their hero. The instigators are exploiting the frustration caused by failure by the governing party, the African National Congress, to deliver all its election promises of creating a better life for all. For example, unemployment stands at a staggering 43%. This makes the country ripe for unrest. The author says that Free Zuma would undermine the rule of law. All that other criminals need to do to avoid accountability will be to threaten violence. No civilized country can allow that. In the second article, Guy Lamb from Stellenbosch University makes the surprising point that looting is often seen as socially acceptable. There is even a term for the process of justifying it. It's called brokerage. I hope you find the articles useful. Goodbye. Tabula Shilada in Johannesburg. That's it for this week. Thank you to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and to the conversation editors, Scott White, Justin Bergman and Alex King. And thanks to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us, podcast at theconversation.com. Also, sign up for our free daily email by clicking the link in the show notes. It's actually a good newsletter, everybody. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. And please tell your friends and family about the show, especially those who may never have listened to podcasts before. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sal. I'm Dan Marino. Thanks for listening, everyone.